Hi, everyone. This week's ASF Weekly Science podcast is a special treat. We have a guest. She is an epidemiologist for the CDC and was part of the CDC's project to monitor prevalence. She is a public health researcher that has expertise in epidemiology, biostatistics, everything from vaccines and infectious diseases and maternal child health. So she's worked domestically and internationally. And actually, before she was an epidemiologist at the CDC, she was an epidemic intelligence service officer, which makes her uniquely poised to talk about rising prevalence or changes in prevalence over time. I want to thank Dr. Hughes for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here and talk about our work. So there's been a lot of, of talk and I've read a lot of news articles and especially a lot of blogs about these new prevalence numbers. So they were released on four-year-olds and eight-year-olds. And before we talk about what those numbers were, can you tell us about how the numbers are counted? So how do you arrive at these numbers? Great, yeah. So the numbers that are presented reflect the latest data that we collected um, from CDC's Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network. For, for these numbers, we the network was working in 11 areas and in 2020 collected data um, of health and education records for four and eight-year-olds. Um, and then we counted kids as having autism if they had any of the following, if they had an autism diagnosis, an autism ICD code, or an autism special education eligibility. So any kid who met who had any three of those um, was counted as an autism case. So in another study that was also released a few weeks ago, um, prior to the CDC prevalence numbers coming out, that might have gotten a little bit hidden. You guys followed up on those that were counted at eight-year-olds, uh, as eight-year-olds, till they were sixteen. So the methods may have changed a little bit. We are going to talk about those numbers. So I wanted to give you the chance to explain how those numbers were counted versus the other numbers. Great. Yes, we are um, so excited to have the first data that CDC has collected on adolescents with autism. So these data um, were collected for the 2018 surveillance year. And it was a follow-up study starting with kids who we initially looked at in the ADAM network in 2010. So briefly, I can just say in 2010, we looked at kids who were aged eight um, who had an indication of autism. And then we followed that same cohort of kids through age 16 in 2018 to um, track um, their health and education records and understand if there's any additional kids identified with autism after age eight. Um, we did not calculate prevalence because this was a follow-up study, but we were able to identify characteristics um, associated with being identified um, after age eight um, and be able to really describe this population from birth to age 16 years. Great. Since that's a new methodology or not a new methodology, but like a new approach compared to the four and eight year olds, which have been consistent over the years, we're going to talk about that later. But first, I want to talk about, OK, we described how they're collected. Now, what did you find with these four year olds and eight year olds? What were the prevalence numbers and um, how were they how have they changed over time? Um, so I'll start with the eight-year-olds. So among eight-year-olds, we found that one in 36 were identified with autism in 2012, um, which was higher than the most recent estimate from 2018, where one in 44 were identified with autism. 
Um, and we also fall in addition, in addition to this higher um, prevalent overall prevalence number, for the first time we found that um, Black, Hispanic, Asian, or Pacific Islander children had a higher autism prevalence compared to white children. And this is the opposite of racial and ethnic differences that we had observed in previous Adam reports. So for four-year-olds, um, we also had some, some interesting findings. So we noticed that there were disruptions in early identification due, the, due to the pandemic that started in March 2020. Um, so we definitely saw um, pandemic impacts. Um, but even with these disruptions, the age of identification for four-year-olds in this cohort compared to the eight-year-old cohort when they were the same age, um, the four-year-olds were still more likely to be identified. Those are some of the key findings from the four and eight-year-old MMWLs. So this racial and ethnic disparities issue is really, really important. And historically, there have been fewer Black and Hispanic kids and Asian kids diagnosed with autism compared to white kids. So can you comment on those racial and ethnic differences? Uh, you know, some people are saying this is good news. Some people are saying it's bad news. Um, you know, what, what do you make of these, these racial and ethnic differences and how it's almost reversed in this last counting cycle? Yeah, the, the, the um, differences in prevalence we're seeing here are opposite of what we've seen in the previous Adam reports. Um, one potential interpretation of this finding is that there are increased um, screening, awareness, and access to services for these historically underrepresented groups. Um, but it also potentially is revealing a higher prevalence among these groups for which we don't have um, a, a biological reason to expect these differences. And so I think it'll be really important to continue to track and monitor differences in um, racial and ethnic um, prevalence estimates um, over time. So there were, it wasn't, there wasn't just differences in racial and ethnic um, variability. There were differences across states. So can you comment on that? Which state had the highest prevalence and which had the lowest? And what do you make of all that? Yes, um, there um, was a variation in prevalence estimates collected by each of our sites. So the lowest estimate was 2.3% of kids with autism in Maryland um, to a high of 4.5% of kids um, identified with autism in California. The variation may be due in part to how communities are identifying children with autism and how that, and that might vary between um, these different communities. And just as an aside, I live in the state of New Jersey and historically New Jersey has been the ones with the highest prevalence. So um, it was a nice reprieve to have somebody else be the focus of high prevalence rates in, in the United States. So I just want to also verify that the same data is collected in each state, right? There are no differences in the way the data is collected. I mean, of course, there's there's differences in reporting, but you guys take it the way that each state, you approach it in each state the same way. Right. It's a standardized methodology um, that, we, that, that each of the sites use that comes from CDC and the data are all collected here and analyzed in the, the exact same fashion. One of the questions we get is whether or not the changes in prevalence represent one particular group, right? So those with intellectual disabilities, you already showed that Hispanic and Black communities are better represented in this particular counting cycle. Um, were there particular groups that were going up more than others? 
And I'm talking about intellect, I already mentioned it, intellectual disability, females, racial and ethnic um, underserved communities, anything. Did you guys particularly notice a, a particular change in one group over the other? Yeah, so for, for this report, for the first time in the Adam Network, we saw the prevalence for girls um, exceeded 1%. So over 1% of girls um, were identified with autism in the communities where Adam um, was, was uh, conducting surveillance. Um, and so while prevalence estimates were higher for boys than for girls in 2000, the increase was greater was greatest for girls. Um, so the, the one one finding is this overall increase um, in females who are, who are being identified as autism. But despite this, boys, um, as, as we've seen in previous re reports, boys are about four times as likely to be identified as autism compared to girls. And what about those with intellectual disabilities? Were they more or less likely to receive a diagnosis than they were before? Um, the uh, percentage of kids with autism who had a co-occurring intellectual disability was pretty similar between 2018 and 2010. I think in 2018, it was 35%, and in 2020, it was 38%, so very similar between the two study years. Was there any one factor then driving this change in prevalence, or was it kind of spread out among all the different factors we talked about? I think we continue to see variability in autism estimates as we've discussed across sites, across um, racial ethnic groups, across um, um, by co-occurring intellectual disability. So I think all, all of those together have contributed to um, are, are associated with the increases we're seeing. And I think it just really highlights our ongoing need to continue to track and monitoring these numbers as they change over time. You talked about the study where um, you took the eight-year-olds identified eight years ago and then followed them until they were 16 um, and then reassessed their diagnostic status. So can you talk a little bit more about what you found in those at 16-year-old at when you went back to that community um, and looked at them again? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, excited to share, the, share these findings. So it's the first time again that Adam had looked at looked in this population in this age group. Um, so one of the things we found is that among, among those who had an indication of autism at age eight, because that's really the population we started with, 12% um, were, were first identified with autism between ages nine and 16. So we saw um, you know, about 12% uh, that were identified after age eight, but the majority, the vast majority were identified um, by age eight. So that was one finding that we were able to look at. Um, we saw overall a really high percentage of co-occurring neuropsychological conditions um, with autism, so um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, anxiety, and depression. The, the percentage of kids with autism who have those co-occurring conditions was much higher than the general population based on previously um, published reports in comparison. Um, so over half of, in just some specifics, over half of um, kids had ADHD by 16, the same for anxiety. 17% um, had documented suicidal behavior or ideation, and 15% were nonverbal or minimally verbal. So these are kids with, um, a lot of them have complex health needs um, that we saw. Um, we were able, because of this um, follow-up nature of the study, we were able to look at their intellectual disability status um, 
by age eight and then by age 16 to understand is it changing, is it staying the same, sort of what is it, how, how much change is there do we see in that um, time period. And what we found was um, intellectual disability or ability um, was relatively stable across those groups. Some kids um, went from having intellectual disability to not, and some kids went without without having intellectual disability to having it by age 16. But overall, it was relatively stable um, between ages 8 and 16. Um, and then another um, area that we really dove into was looking at individualized education plans. And just maybe for your listeners that aren't as aware of those, um, their um, plans are individualized education program or programs are created by schools for ch eligible children. Um, so they to identify um, services and support to meet each student's needs if the student has an identified disability. Um, and so students with autism and other disabilities receive these IEPs and are updated. Um, so in addition to um, annual IEPs that need to be created, by the time students are age 16 years, they're required to be um, a transition plan associated with these IEPs to help think through what plans are in place for post high school life. What are they going to, what is their plan for education? What is their plan for employment? What is their plan for post high school living um, to really prepare them? So that, that is just a, so a bit of a background about what, um, what should be happening in schools. And so we were able to actually look at the IEPs for students um, that had these created and where the records were available. And encouragingly, we found over um, uh, the vast majority, like 90 over 90% had a transition plan associated with our IEP, which are really encouraging. Um, we did find a, a slight disparity by intellectual ability status. So those with um, intellectual disability were slightly less likely to have an, um, a transition plan associated with their IEP compared to those without okay. intellectual disability. I will be the first one to say that I'm shocked that, and I was shocked that 90% of them actually had a transition plan within their IEP. This is something that, um, you know, parents are always kind of fighting, fighting, fighting every year for those IEPs. And sometimes things get put on there that the parents push for, and sometimes they don't. And it's just an ongoing struggle that sometimes parents just kind of throw their hands up on. So that is encouraging. It is encouraging. Um, I just want to clarify, though, one thing. While you monitor, while you looked at um, intellectual disability or intellectual ability at age eight and then also 16, some of the things you mentioned, like co-occurring neuropsychiatric issues like ADHD um, and depression, those things are not monitored at eight. So you really don't, you can't measure a change over time, right? Um, we looked at those as a ever occurrence. So we actually do have records because we can we linked the records that we collected in 2018 to records that we collected in in 2010 when they were age eight. And we did collect the presence of okay. during their psychological conditions then. So we actually in the paper go into detail of what was the um, the percentage of kids with these co-occurring neuropsychological conditions hmm. at eight. And then what was their um, the percentage at age 16. So the numbers I just gave there were like by age 16 how many ever had okay. these, um, but we also have data um, by age eight, how many ever had these. So you mentioned that there were like 10% of kids, I mean, it was a small number, but it was still a number that were not diagnosed at eight, but then kind of were, did meet criteria at 16. Can you explain, explain whatever you can about that, you know, how that you think that happened? 
um, what that represents. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to speak to that. We were interested in what characteristics were associated with being identified um, after age eight compared to being identified by age eight years. And what we found when we looked at this is that those kids who are identified later, later are more likely to be um, Hispanic ethnicity, um, or more likely to be verbal, um, or more likely to have a normal adapt, um, adaptive functioning and intellectual ability. Um, and also co-occurring um, anxiety, depression, or ADHD was also associated with a later um, age of identification. Um, we found one in seven uh, had ASD ruled out either by a diagnosis, diagnosis, a clinician saying I'm ruling out AD, a, autism, or uh, in schools as an eligibility. So one in seven kids who, who eventually I were identified as having autism, had it ruled out prior to, to receiving that final diagnosis. So at our day of learning last week, we heard from a speaker who, um, two speakers, one that spoke about anxiety and one that spoke on different co-occurring medical conditions that really emphasized that there may be an incorrect diagnosis. You know, the things present themselves as anxiety, but the anxiety could be misdiagnosed as traditional when in fact it's atypical, which could which could indicate an autism diagnosis. So, um, so you know that that could be part of it, but not all of it, obviously, because you're saying that that's like one in seven that it was ruled out. Yes, yes. I mean, what one? I mean, thinking about um, verbal ability and adaptive and IQ um, scores being associated with later identification. So they, they, there might be less need less impairment resulting in fewer needs for services which may also relate to not being identified in the community as, as having autism because there's potentially less need um, at those younger ages is there anything else about these prevalence numbers before 8 and 16 that i didn't touch on that you want to mention it's very possible that i missed something important from the reports no i think um okay. We've covered most of the, the key findings and highlights on these right. that we are excited to share. So are you going to continue to monitor 16-year-olds or track them or track the eight-year-olds as they get to be 16? Or how are you going to do that? Um, yes, we are actively working to continue to monitor um, the 16-year-olds. So the data we've just discussed today is from the 2018 surveillance year. Um, we will also have similar data coming out um, from the 2020 surveillance year for kids who are born, you know, the birth cohort that's two years um, later. In addition, we have, we started a new funding cycle in January of this year, January 2023, where we are monitoring 16-year-olds, but we're doing it um, similarly to what is being done for four and eight-year-olds. So it's cross-sectional. So instead of being a follow-up over time, it'll be more of a, a snapshot of what's happening to these kids when they're age 16. So we're very excited to align it more with the four and eight-year-old work and to be able to talk um, more comprehensively of what's happening at age 16. Um, and I can add a really exciting part of that um, component of the funding is we have a, um, we're going to start a working group of funded sites to explore how we can connect data in high school to post high school educational mm -hmm. outcomes. And so we will work to explore over the next two years how we can continue to potentially expand into the young adult um, period. 
Yeah, that's great because that's going to involve not just going to schools, but going through family members and through different community, you know, community sources to figure out where those kids now adults are. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. We will be in touch soon as more CDC data comes out. We'll obviously be including you in future podcasts. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was great to be here with you today.